as a pastor or staff member of a church. It is common to experience compassion fatigue and find that you spend so much time caring for others, you're not caring for yourself. Saga wants to help foster healthy churches by facilitating the support of the emotional, mental, and relational health of their leaders. As a partner of Saga, pastors and staff can confidently and easily begin their journey by being uniquely matched to a therapist that best fits their needs. To learn more about a church partnership with Saga, go to sagacenter.org. That's S-A-G-A center.org. Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey, welcome to episode 257. My name is Rusty George, and today we get to talk to a brain scientist. His name is Brian Hickson, and he leads an incredible research organization that helps make sense of the way and the why we do things. Brian Hickson is going to help make the brain simple for us. Have you ever wondered why some people are able just to break various habits easier than others? Why some people struggle with OCD and other anxiety issues? Why you, by chance, just can't let some things go? A lot of it comes right down to our brain, the physical part of our body that keeps us from moving in the right direction. It's sometimes a whole lot more than just willpower. Uh, I went into this conversation with some questions and I came out with my mind blown. I guess it would be a bit of a pun there. But Brian Hickson is an incredible individual, got some great stuff for us today, and I know you're going to be fascinated by what he has to say. I want to thank Saga Counseling. Uh, Speaking of helping out our minds, Saga Counseling does so much to help out uh, you and your marriage and your family and providing great therapy and counseling. So make sure you check out sagacounseling.com and they can help you out. Well, here's my conversation with Brian Hickson. Brian Hickson, great to have you on the podcast. Uh, for our listeners, tell us who you are and what it is that you do. Yeah, I am a neuroscientist, and uh, really my my job is to look at the brain and really understand the brain, understand what's going on. We really look at a lot of things from concussion and, and some of the top pro athletes and how that kind of affects the brain all the way down to dementia side of it and how that affects the brain. I do a lot of work with uh, AARP, running their dementia prevention programs and stuff. And then we do all the way down to local things that we really look at people for attention deficit and anxiety disorders and a lot of the, the, the brain side of mental health. You know, I think for so long we've called it mental health. I, I will love it one day when we call it brain health. And that's really what it is, <laughs> is, is fixing the brain the behavior will come when you fix the brain. Why do you think we only call it mental health? You know, it's because it's 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 the symptom, right? It's the symptom that comes out. So that would be like calling, you know, everything pain. You know, it's the symptom that comes out. Okay. And the problem is we haven't had enough tangible evidence of understanding what is causing the symptom. So once we do, you know, I always tell people that uh, if you went to your orthopedic surgeon, and you told them, Doc, I've got all this pain in my back. It hurts every time I do this. And when I bend this way and do these things, it hurts. It kills me. What's going on? And they took down a bunch of notes and then said, all right, I got it. What you have, your diagnosis is pain. You would probably fire that person, right? I mean, it sounds funny because you would fire that person. But in the mental health field, that's a lot of what we do. We take these clusters of symptoms. Oh, you tell me you have all this anxiety. Okay, what you have is generalized anxiety disorder. And what we're going to do to treat that is an anxiety medication, which means we're basically going to treat everybody with anxiety exactly the same, regardless of what's causing it in the first place. Okay, before we get into all that, you said a couple of things that triggered me as far as uh, I have questions about. You deal with concussions a lot. Do you work with a lot of football players? I do. Um, should, for all of our parents out there that have kids that are beginning to play Pop Warner and play football, should they not allow their kids to play football? That's always the big question, right? Everybody asks, do you let your kids play football? Right. And here's the thing, is that football is going to increase the risk of injury, okay? But I can tell you, we work, we have a a whole center at a local school called Oaks Christian School, a large private school. Oh, yeah. And um, and we do, I've worked with them. We've had that center since 2013 on campus. Okay. So we work a lot with their students. And I can tell you, we have just as many injuries from cheerleading 
from dance, from girls' soccer, as we do from football. Okay, so anything will have increased the risk of injury. The problem with concussions is that we can't see it. So therefore we let it go. It would be like getting a broken arm and just saying, well, I have pain. Well, just wait till the pain just barely starts to go away and then play again. Right. Okay. So, you know, introducing things like brain mapping where we can actually take a quick brain scan and understand is the function changing? Are those neurons changing, compensating because of what's going on? Or did they reset correctly and go back to normal? If you repair the injury, you will not have long lasting results from concussions. Concussion becomes like any other injury. You get it, you repair it, you go on. Wow. Okay. That's fascinating. How long till we have soccer players wearing helmets? <laughs> well, here's the thing is that you know, it's funny, when you compare the injuries of football versus rugby, right? Where rugby, you're not wearing a helmet, where football you are. The problem with a helmet is it gives you a sense, a, a false sense of security. Yeah. Now I can slam into that person. Yeah. And I learned to do that versus rugby. They learn how to tackle without hitting head on. Yeah. So there's problems with that too, right? I, I think that you're onto something there. If, if football was played with the old leather helmets like they used to have or no helmets, we wouldn't have near the targeting we have right now, right? Not at all. Not at all. You would not be going head on to someone that gives you that false sense of security. And the problem with the helmet too is that concussion occurs when the inside buttery form of the brain slams against the inside of the skull. So this is the impact, brain against the inside of the skull. If I have a helmet on and I slam into someone, my brain still slams into my skull just as much as if I didn't have a helmet on. Wow. That's fascinating. Okay. Now I sound like a hypocrite because I love football. I don't want it to go away, but I'm just uh, thinking about the kids out there. <laughs> we just need to treat it like any other injury and repair it. Right. And once we have objective tools to be able to do that, which we're getting there, we're going to be able to have the game, enjoy it, and treat it just like any other injury, repair it, and get right back in the game and play. Great. Okay. So I've been told to ask you this question, and if you can't answer it, I understand. But who have been or are some of your clients? <laughs> so, well, I can't give individual names, but we've worked um, a lot with um, a lot of the Seattle Seahawks to the Dallas Mavericks hmm. to the U.S. Olympic team. We've worked um, extensively with U.S. Army, Special Forces, wow. um, Colorado Rockies, um, and then probably close to a thousand pro elite level and Olympic level individual athletes as well. It's interesting when you um, when you're introducing brain mapping to especially a team, most of especially the football players don't want to do it. Yeah, because they're like, you're not taking a look at my brain. You know, I don't want my GM, my coach to see my brain to even if I've had concussions, I don't want them to know. And I don't want to know because without football, I don't have much. Right. That's that's my life, what I do. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them are scared to see. And what they don't understand is that you can repair these things. These are neurons that are compensating. It's like having a, a physical injury. You'd go to a physical therapist. They would repair that balance. They get rid of that limp in your leg, you know, and uh, and you can repair these things. So it's right. it's going to come a long ways once they really understand you can fix it. It's not just well, you have a concussion, you have to stop playing. Right. Oh, that's good. Okay, so let's get down into this. What exactly is a brain map, uh, and how do you do one? So a brain map is a functional, it's looking at the function of the brain. So think of it very much like an EKG on the heart. You place all these leads on the heart. Okay. You're measuring for six to eight minutes of that heart activity and it's measuring all the electrical function. And really what we're looking at with the brain, when we have an EEG cap on the brain, it has 19 sensors on it. And you're sitting there staring at a wall for six minutes and have your eyes closed for about six minutes. So you've got 12 minutes of eyes open, eyes closed, sitting there, a nice big comfortable chair, big open room. This isn't a tube. There's no magnets. There's no electricity being put in your brain. It is literally like 19 stethoscopes recording your own brain electricity. Okay. The worst thing is it messes up your hair a little bit because we put a little bit of gel through that, that sensor to attach to the skull and make sure we have a good connection. So for six minutes of eyes closed, six minutes with eyes open, it's recording the resting state of your brain. Now the resting state is so important to understand because just like your heart rate, and I always give analogies to heart rate because most people understand that more. When you have a nice resting state, that's important on your heart because there's a threshold up here 
that when you get it maybe around 200 beats per minute, there's a threshold that everybody has symptoms. You're gonna feel like you have a heart attack. You're gonna feel shortness of breath. Things occur at around 200 beats per minute or more, you know, where the, the heart's maxing out. So if your resting state is down around 60, you've got plenty of reserve to run, to stress your heart, to live life, to do everything you need to do. But if your resting state is at 120, too high, that's where your starting place is. When you go to run, I can tell you, you're gonna have those symptoms very, very quick. So the resting state shows us how much reserve you have to handle stress. And that's really what a brain map is doing is it's looking at those neurons. Is your brain coming down to a nice, calm resting state where those neurons are coming down to an idle or are they staying up too high, which means that you're gonna run out of reserve with just a little bit of stress in certain areas of your brain. Wow. Okay. So that explains so much of, well, let's take the pandemic, for instance. Most of us already had stress, and now you add that to it, uh, whether it's isolation or the loss of income or just the fear of the unknown. That just put a lot of us over the top. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Huge amounts. Social isolation is horrible for the brain. You need the connection with other people. You need that connection. You need that physical connection too, not just Zoom. Zoom doesn't, it, it's a step in the right direction. But, you know, these, you know, the, the other thing is, you know how much stress it is when you have even a mask on? Mm. Because you've got your right side of your brain, it, the frontal portion of your brain is analyzing all your social nonverbal cues. So it's watching, oh. uh, you know, do they care about me? What's their look? What's their facial? Are they falling asleep? Are they mad at me? All those things. The left side of my brain is listening to your actual literal words and getting my words back to you. Now, both those go into one conversation that you cannot separate. So if you ever notice, like when you're, you know, during the pandemic, when you're trying to order food and you've got a waitress or so with the mask on and you can't understand them. Yeah. Now you can hear it. The, the, the volume is fine, yeah. but that right side of the brain is struggling so much to understand. You don't realize how much we read lips, how much we look at these facial expressions. Right. And to block that off adds twice the amount of stress just in a communication. Okay, so this is a bit of a, a rabbit trail, but I'm just thinking about what you just said about Zoom is not enough. Um, not, you don't even have to get into the, uh, the biblical or spiritual side of it, but the value of church in person versus online. What does the brain tell us about that? Well, from the brain side, when you're in person next to each other, first of all, when you're in person, communication, those nonverbal communication is so much stronger than on Zoom. Mm. Zoom has a, a limitation to what you can read for people and what you can see and stuff. It's hard to pay attention to those verbal cues or nonverbal cues versus when you're in person. When you're in person, there's a sense of energy that goes on. There's, there's a lot of um, studies that can show through, you know, even electromagnetic fields and stuff, you know, your heart produces an electromagnetic field around you. There's a lot of energy around you. And when you are next to someone who has that same type of electrical activity, there's, this is all science. This isn't, you know, something else. This, you can actually measure these things. Your energy actually combines with other people. And so when you're, hmm. when someone is kind and putting off a loving spirit towards you, it actually physically influences that person and their brain activity. They could be very sad and down and someone that is very peaceful, that energy actually physically comes across. It actually changes some of the way the brain actually works. It can actually condition the brain to respond to that. Now, some of that is through the, the understanding all those nonverbal cues of what's going on. Some of it's through a little bit of energy that transfers back and forth. You know, again, I'm not talking about weird stuff. I'm talking about just actual electricity that, that can start to come through there. So you can change, you can comfort someone, but then there's the whole side of nonverbal cues that's not just reading someone's face, that's a physical touch right? Mm. Of being able to touch, put your hand on someone and feel someone, a hug, closeness, seeing they're staring at someone. You know, it's, it's such a different thing to the brain. It's probably, if, if Zoom was a one on a scale of social connection, in-person's a 10. Now, no Zoom is a zero. So, you know, one is better than, than zero, but it's tenfold to be in-person with people. Okay, so in light of the pandemic and uh, everything that we saw go on with that, we just talked about how that raised our, 
our resting rate a little bit higher and certainly made things difficult for us. But here we are three years later. Um, what do you see as uh, the reason why the, and correct me for this phrase or pardon it, the mental health uh, epidemic that people are sensing right now? Is it just now we're talking about it or is it a combination of, of pandemic and social media and everything else? Um, or are, are we all just so much more stressed than we ever have been? Well, there's there's definitely the we've always been stressed. It's like you said, it's always been to a certain level. If you if you get to like say, you know, again, let's you know, I know a lot of people aren't seeing this, so we're talking about you know more audio here. You know, say a scale of one hundred, you feel intense anxiety, maybe a panic attack. Okay, we've always been as a society getting close to like fifty. Okay, on that, and that's our starting point, right? We're already our brain's already wired to just go and achieve things and get things done. Productivity, even those things become stressful, right? Mm -hmm. So, but then you throw a worldwide pandemic, and with that, first the fear that happens. The problem with the brain is you've got, you know, wish I kind of had some more visuals to kind of show this, but imagine the very center of your brain, right in the middle of your brain, is something called the limbic system. Okay, the limbic system is where all your survival center is. Okay, and then outside of that, the outside layer is called the cortex. Now, the cortex grows with every new thing you learn. Okay, so as you learn how to ride a bike, as you learn language, as you learn how to move and coordinate yourself, you grow all these connections in your cortex. The cortex gives you a sense of control over your life. The limbic system is a sense of run, fight, freeze okay that's our fight or flight freeze type mechanism that is think of it almost like triggering a wild animal okay mm -hmm. and and they just react to things now what happens is like a newborn baby is born with almost all limbic system and hardly any cortex they have not learned anything yet they have enough to support their you know their function and stuff their their general functions but they are almost all limbic that's why they cannot smile Okay, they cannot have happiness in newborn baby. They cry out of a sense of survival. When I'm hungry as a newborn baby, I cry because I think my survival is at stake right now. Mm. I'm gonna die, mom, get over here and feed me, okay? Now, what happens is after about three to four weeks of crying, being fed, crying, being fed, crying, being fed, the cortex starts paying attention to those associations and it starts growing enough neurons in those areas, enough connections between the neurons that actually says, hey, it looks like crying equals being fed. Mm. And all of a sudden the baby after three to four weeks moves from crying out of the limbic system, the sense of survival, to crying out of the cortex. Now again, before with sense of survival, the cortex is a sense of manipulation. This baby is now maybe not even hungry, but they are going to try this crying thing to see if they can get mom to come and feed them. And they do. And all of a sudden when mom comes, they smile and they have a sense of happiness. Now, most moms think they're happy because they recognize mom and this is wonderful. I'm sorry to break it to moms, but it's not. <laughs> okay. It's a sense of accomplishment. I just did my very first accomplishment. I figured out and I have security now. I figured out how I can be fed. Anytime I cry, I get fed. And I have this huge security to me now that gets me out of my limbic system, into my cortex, and I have a sense of control over my life. So when there's a lot of fear, when you've got 24 hours of news bombarding us with fear, all that's doing is activating our limbic system. And we have no idea what to do. There's no solution out there. There's no one telling us what to do. We're confused. So the cortex starts shutting down. And when the cortex starts shutting down, you start getting atrophy in the cortex. So we start losing our ability to think. We start losing our ability to problem solve for ourselves. Hmm. We start just submitting to whatever anybody says. And we start increasing our fear center in the middle of our brain that says, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if, what if? We start losing our ability to be happy, to be in control, to be secure. And that's where our brains are left at this point. Wow. I'm going to need to rewind that and listen to it again. That was that was profound. So. This, um, it seems to me, from my lack of education in this area, that we lost so much control, and this is back to your, you know, crying, be fed, crying, be fed. None of us could control the events of 2020, so we all did our very best to try to control, whether it was through anger or riots or social media outbursts. 
But that seems to have lingered. It's like I, I just find more and more people that are, I don't know if we would call them you know, an OCD issue, but there is this desire to, I have to control either you by you do what I say or my situation. I think the, even the, the uh, increase of, of drugs and alcohol addiction and even pornography, we control that to some degree. I mean, do you think that that just kind of feeds this idea of I'm trying to find a way that I'm in control of this as opposed to everything else? Absolutely. Absolutely. Anxiety, the true definition of anxiety is the fear of being out of control. You might not even be out of control. It's the fear I might be out of control. That's why anxiety can happen when something's not even happening. I always tell people, it's not anxiety if you wake up in the middle of the night and you look out your window in the middle of the night and someone's breaking into your house. You would never describe as, wow, it's weird. I had anxiety during that time. No, that's a normal reaction. It would be anxiety if you woke up in the middle of the night, you looked out the window, nothing's out there, everything's safe, everything's secure, and your brain is in a state as if something was bringing, someone was breaking into your house. That would be anxiety. When your brain, it's the fear of being out of control, right? Right. Now, so what happens is, you know, OCD is a behavior mechanism whereby we try and control the little things we can control to give us a sense of outward control. We can't control everything happening to us, mm. but if I micromanage this little thing, I at least have a sense that I'm controlling something because our brains hate having no control. It's one of the worst form of tortures. You know, we do a lot with the, uh, the Red Bull high performance team. And one of the things that we can do is we take athletes down there and we put them in a sensory deprivation chamber. So basically they lay down in this kind of tub of oil that basically heats the oil up to their skin temperature. And as soon as you get to that skin temperature, you lose the sensation of where all your limbs are. Everything, there's no control. The brain freaks out, okay? And the goal of that, I mean, it's fun just to torture the athletes, but it, it, the goal <laughs> of that is to try and get them to be able to be calm and meditative in that situation, an extreme situation can you control what you can control? You can control your reaction to the brain freaking out. And once you learn to be able to do that, it's an amazing thing. You have control over so much in your life when you can learn to control your own reaction to the outside world that you can't control. That's fascinating. Okay, so you do this with athletes. Is that something anybody can do? <laughs> I mean, well, under supervision. I'm not going to you know, fill the bathtub full of olive oil, but you know. Exactly. Exactly. No, we, we do a lot of fun stuff between the military and the uh, and the athletes. We get to torture a lot of people for fun. So, so somebody can sign up for that willingly. Is that right? Yes. So oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. In chambers. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. And Let's get back to that. Makes it all dark. So you can't see, you can't feel, you can't, and you're just like floating. Yeah. And it's a weird sensation. So um, a lot of us who listen to sports radio or are fascinated by sports, we've learned a lot about um, psychedelics, sensory deprivation, and darkness retreats because of Aaron Rodgers. So uh, is there any uh, benefit to all those things? Um, I'm not asking you to you know, give your opinion on psychedelics, but just, I mean, this is all working on the brain, right? Trying to figure out the best way to make decisions. Is that what's going on here? Well, Here's, here's the problem. A lot of times, you know, again, let's go back to that limbic system. If you, if you just could put the brain into two structures, that limbic system and cortex, survival control, you know, limbic system, its goal is to survive today. Just survive today. That does not sound fun. That sounds just like getting through, white knuckling, getting through, right? The cortex's job or the, its mission is to thrive in the future. Hmm. So it would rather undergo some lack of something today, forego some you know, thing today to have something in the future, right? The, the, the cortex would rather save your money today to have money to pay your bills. It would rather not eat that today to be able to achieve your goals in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Where the limbic system is all about how I feel right now, how I feel rise me. I see. So, you know, the, the problem is that when people have traumas that happen to them, say a childhood trauma, um, abuse, say a long-term health condition that causes trauma and stuff with it, what we end up doing, especially like childhood things, they're so painful 
Okay, our limbic system is on high alert all the time because something could happen. There's no happiness when you're being abused, when there's danger around you, especially a, a kid that doesn't have a lot of cortex already and their limbic system's on high alert like it should be. There's something going on. They, they need to assess that risk constantly. But the problem is that once that gets removed, say they get out of that situation and they go on in life, they start to produce so much anxiety in their brain that almost is like a wall to wall off that trauma. So I don't ever go there. I don't even want to think about it. I keep busy. I keep doing things and I create all this anxiety to really protect myself from that. Yeah. So what psychedelics can do is they can temporarily lower that anxiety around there and give you access a little bit to the limbic system. Ah. Now, there's a lot of things out there that people are talking about this kind of ceremony. I, I feel like I was one with the universe and all these things. And I'm not going to at all talk about someone else's experience. What they felt like is what they felt like. You know, I wasn't there, so I can't say that. But what I think they probably are experiencing is this kind of release of control release of their own biases, release of how their brain has protected them for so long. And it releases that down to where they say they feel this sense of love and connectedness. You know, that's the limbic system has all those emotions in it. And the problem with anxiety, it builds a wall so we don't get in there, but it also walls us off from experiencing love, from experiencing healing from, and this is where, you know, mental health in the church, I would say it, it walls, anxiety walls us off from experiencing fully God, mm. okay? And when you lower that anxiety down, now, you know, in the church, again, I was born and raised in the church. I love the church, you know, but the problem is a lot of times in mental health in the church, people are like, you know what? You shouldn't have anxiety because if you were a real Christian, you would just release the anxiety to God. It says right in the Bible, release those anxieties, right? right. Now, what they're talking about in the Bible is those anxious thoughts we get in our head that we can't control. And thank God that we have a great God that is in control and we can release that to him, right, to you. But when we have an anxiety disorder and we have those neurons firing away, causing us to overthink everything, when you take someone that maybe is running at a, an 80 or 90 on the anxiety level all the time, and they are sitting there pouring their heart out to God to release this, and they go from a 90 to an 80, what they just did, the amount of work it takes to go from a 90 to an 80 <laughs> and to have that much faith that you're just trying to release this to God, God, take this from me so much. That amount of faith, I think, is a million times bigger than the average person that doesn't have anxiety disorder. It says, you know what? I can't control it, so I'm just going to give it to God. Yeah, and really what they're saying is I really don't care. You know, hopefully God works this out for me. Right. Right. And, you know, it's easy to take that for granted when we start doing that versus someone with a real anxiety disorder is trying so hard to release this. And they they feel a lot of times like, you know, gosh, I must not be doing something right to be able to, you know, have this this feeling still there. Hmm. And um, so it's it's important to understand the difference between, you know, anx anxious thoughts and anxiety right a disorder that's that's a really good clarification because you're right that was the kind of church i was raised in which was uh well listen you just gotta pray it away yeah you know i mean wh why are you obsessing about that uh, i was i've always been a very anxious person and even as a kid i remember having an ulcer in the second grade i mean i was just high strung and i remember going through all of my uh, adolescent years just feeling really bad that I was worried, you know, because I read those passages about worry and think, man, I'm just living in sin, uh, you know, just <laughs> consuming Tums and Pepto-Bismol just trying to make it through, right. uh, you know, ninth grade. So uh, I love that, that classification there of those two things. Hey, let me interrupt this podcast for just a second to remind you, if you're not taking care of your mental health, nobody is. Step up and go check out sagacenter.org to find out more. All right, back to our show. Okay, let's talk about the brain map a little bit. I mean, what does it show you? What are you looking for? Um, what, what's a typical brain look like versus one that's had high trauma or high um, levels of, uh, of anxiety or uh, PTSD or those kind of things? Walk us through what you're looking for and what you typically see. Absolutely. So first of all, there is no typical brain. Okay. Okay. And there is no typical 
physiology behind symptoms. And that's, that's the first thing that I think science really shows us is that when we look at the brain, if I took 10 people with anxiety and I lined them up, they would probably have 10 different types of physiology causing the exact same symptoms. Wow. So, which is very different from the pharmaceutical model that we have right now, where we diagnose someone and throw everybody on the same. And you wonder why some people will be like, you know what, I got on this medication and I did so well, you need to try it. And then someone else tries it and like, no, that caused me all kinds of issues and symptoms and stuff with it, mm. even worse, because we didn't have the same physiology in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very important again to, you know, really start with a non-bias and start with, let's just look at the brain and see how it functions. I love my job because we don't have anybody fill out histories, why they're coming in. I will get one person that's there for sports performance. The next person is a you know 14 year old girl that's tried to kill herself twice. The next one is a 40 year old mom who has so much anxiety. She feels like she's gonna harm her kids. The next one is a, you know, 50 year old guy that their memory is just shot and they're thinking they have early onset Alzheimer's. Mm. Okay. So all different people. And we don't take histories. We go, I go right off the brain map and I tell people before they say why they're here, I tell them everything I see in their brain. And most people are like, you know me better than I know me. Like they're, they're, they sit there, they literally say, you know, this is like, you're, you're basically like a palm reader. <laughs> I always tell them it's not like palm reading. It's like if you went to a doctor and they x-rayed your arm and they saw a big break in your arm and said, probably when you go to lift with your left arm, you probably have some pain. You're like, how did you know that, right? Because <laughs> we looked at the arm, we know what each region of the brain does and we know how those things affect it. So I can say, when you go to this, you're gonna have this problem when you do this. And these are general things. These aren't like your thoughts. These are more like, you can have more of a propensity to have more headaches and stuff in certain areas. You can have more where your brain doesn't turn off. You know, you can have a harder time with memory and things like that. You can see those things in the brain. So you know, the, the first thing to understand is that you have different neurons fire off at different speeds. Okay, so you've got these neurons and they fire off electricity. If they fire off very slow, like two times per second, those are what's called delta waves, okay, which are a different preferential rate. And those are gonna handle the slower waves less than four times per second. Those regulate your sleep cycles, your digestive system, your immune system, your circulation, all those things, hormonal regulation, all those things. Those are very slow neurons. They're firing off throughout the day. You produce very little amount of those throughout the day. They're just regulating digestion, hormonal regulation. But at night, you start producing huge amounts going up when you go into deep sleep, and then it comes back down. You produce huge amplitude and down. Every 90 minutes, it goes up and down. When you produce the most of those, when you're at the very top of that 90-minute sleep cycle, that deep non-REM sleep, that's when your brain cleanses out all the metabolic waste, the plaques and the toxins. Everybody thinks sleep is for, you know, just recovering and getting energy. It is the detoxification cycle, okay? You do not have a lymphatic system in your brain. Your lymphatic system in your body cleanses everything out throughout the day. Imagine if our lymphatic systems only worked in deep sleep. The amount of deep sleep we get nowadays, you probably would all be dead. Right. I mean, it would just be you wouldn't. Wow. You wouldn't do it. So at night in those deep stages of sleep is when it's cleansing out. If you're not cleansing that out, you are building up plaques, you're building up toxins, you're building up metabolic waste in your brain. And it's getting all inside that membrane and clogging it up. And it lowers the ability to shoot neurotransmitters from one cell to the next. Mm -hmm. OK, so those slow waves, we can look at how much you're producing. Are you getting through good detox cycles at night or not? Someone could be a lot of people come to me and say, you know, I tell them they have a sleep problem. They're like, are you kidding me? I can sleep 12 hours. And I'm always like, if you can sleep 12 hours, you have a sleep problem. You should not be able to sleep 12 hours. You should not want to sleep out 12 hours. And most of those people, you ask them, can you sleep 12 hours and still be exhausted? Yeah, totally. Well, then you're not getting the quality of sleep. You're getting these very shallow sleep cycles and your brain's trying to go longer, okay? And then you have a little bit faster sleep cycle or a little bit faster brain wave that's called alpha waves. There's theta in between those two, but we won't really touch base on those. But alpha is eight to 10 times per second. And this is like your brain's idle, okay? This is when your brain is fully awake, but you are very present. You're in the moment, okay? And it's when you're producing these alpha waves, you're not thinking about the future. You're not thinking about the past. You are in the moment right now present, okay? Now, I can tell you that very few people have adequate amounts of these waves because you only grow these waves 
and, and these braids, you know, these are actual connections in the brain when you practice it. Our society does not practice being present at all. Okay. We always practice going and we practice trying to stop and go to sleep. But being present in the moment from a neuroscience perspective, and I would argue from a biblical perspective, is where all happiness occurs. Because hmm. being present is really being content. I am content and present right now. I'm not trying to always achieve something. So achieving things are good. We want to achieve things, but then we need to take a break and be present and really just enjoy what we just achieved, right? We need to enjoy being with our families. You know, I, uh, I have a 18 year old, a 24 year old, both boys. And then my wonderful wife at 39 years old decides we need to have another baby. And so now we have a six year old. Okay. Oh, wow. So six year old daughter, got my daughter, and then we got the two boys. Now, when you're young and when those boys were younger, it seems like it's all about if I can just get them to the next stage, if I can just get them out of diapers, we'll be good. If we can just get them into school, if we just get them into school full time, all the way up to when they're 15, it's like if they just could drive, I'm not running them around everywhere, right? Everything's about if we just get to the next stage. The problem with that is always thinking about the next stage is we are throwing away the stage that we're in right now. We're always thinking it's going to be good then. It's going to be good then. And it loses our ability to be content and happy with where we are right now. Mm. My wife and I with our six-year-old, even when she's throwing a fit, we are trying to be present. We are trying. And it's amazing. When you just change that mindset and think about it, when she's throwing a fit, it's almost humorous. Instead of getting mad about it, it's like she is throwing a fit because like her one Barbie doll didn't stand up the way she wanted to. It keeps falling over. And that's like the, her whole life's ending because of this, right? And it's kind of funny. It's kind of humorous. And you can laugh and you can be present. And you're taking in all these memories mm. versus like, just stop being that way. Stop crying. Stop doing this. Just you know, go on. You're <laughs> driving me crazy right? And um, so being present is so important. Um, you know, I, th I think this goes along, I did a lot of work a um, long time ago with uh, the a book called The Daniel Plan yeah. um, with um, Rick Warren and stuff too. And, you know, and, and we talked a lot through that about how our quiet times with God tend to be a checkoff. Like, okay, I got to spend 10 minutes in my Bible, you know, like grab my Bible real quick and just read through it. Boom. Okay. That's done. Good. God, you're done. Now I can go on through my life. Right. Mm. And the problem with that is that's like, you know, in marriage, it's the same way. It's like, okay, come in. All right. I talked to you for a few minutes. We passed by, we exchanged information about our schedules. Now let's keep going and do our things we need to do. You don't get relationships in that more anxious mode. You get relationships in being present. When you sit there and open your Bible and you kind of just meditate for a few minutes, you just try and concentrate on your, your brain producing these slower alpha waves and you become very present, you're reading the Bible, it's totally different. Mm -hmm. This is a state where God can communicate to you and you can listen, you know, versus you just you know, throwing up all over everything, all right? Just, you know, in our in our verbal conversations, just throwing up everything we want to say and then getting out. When we're with our spouse and we are listening and we're present, it's a totally different thing. When we're with our kids and we're listening and are present, you know, when we're with God and we're listening with him present, it changes everything. So these alpha waves, I always spend a lot of time on them because this is the key to happiness in our society today is throwing that all away mm. in pursuing these beta get things done waves as a way to happiness. You know, that's fascinating because we tend to think that, you know, the, the goal is just to be present for the sake of enjoying the moment. But you're telling us there's actually some, some you know, physical and brain stuff going on there that's actually making us healthier yes. in our brain. That is incredible. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, you mentioned several things that can help our brains. Sleep, uh, good sleep, that is. Um, you know, being present, um, you know, meditating on God's Word, those kind of things. Yep. Uh, anything else that could be really good, healthy stuff for the brain? Are we supposed to eat more almonds? I heard that's good for the brain. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Nuts are definitely good for the brain, uh, for sure. Um you know, all those things, you know, help a little bit, right? There, it's not, not like eat a ton and, you know, eating nuts can help a little bit, right? And, <laughs> and these certain things can do. Um, you know, omega-3s are super, super important for the brain. <laughs> 40, 30 to 40% of all the dendrite connections, those neurons and stuff in your brain are made 
of omega-3s. Think of omega-3s are to the brain basically what protein is to your muscle, hmm. okay? You wouldn't go to the gym and work out without a certain amount of protein. And imagine what our muscles would look like if we said, yeah, I eat probably, you know, one serving of protein, maybe, you know, once every two weeks, hmm. right? The average of what people eat fish, right? And 30 to 40% of all those connections are made. And they're essential fatty acids, which means that your body does not produce any of them. You get what you're born with from mom and you get what you eat. Now, the interesting thing is that you only get it from fish. EPA and DHA are the two omega-3 fatty acids that come from fish. Fish eat algae, which is ALA, a form of omega-3, but ALA doesn't get processed in the brain. The brain's not made of ALA. It has to break down into EPA and DHA to get through the brain and help the brain. Mm. But fish eat the algae and they convert it to EPA and DHA, huh. okay? So then we eat the fish and we have the high amounts of EPA and DHA. Now, you wanna talk about you know, the miracle of babies, the miracle of God and how he creates all this brain stuff is your body typically converts about 3% of ALA to EPA and DHA. So I always tell people you'd have to eat about, you know, five pounds of flaxseed to equal about one teaspoon of fish oil. Okay, so if you wanna eat that much of those things, that's fine, okay? <laughs> However, the only time in the human body that it actually converts more is the third trimester of pregnancy, okay? <laughs> At that time, you excrete an enzyme that's right when the baby's brain is being formed, when it needs all that. You excrete an enzyme that breaks down up to 30% of ALA, converts to EPA and DHA, forms the baby's brain, and as long as you continue breastfeeding, you continue to produce the enzyme which breaks that down. Mm. Okay? When you stop breastfeeding, it shuts it off and you go back down to the 3%. Okay? So that's right when the baby's brain is being formed. You know How anybody can think all this occurs on accident, you know, it, it's, it's just crazy. I mean, it just right during that time, breastfeeding's done, stops, goes right back to normal and conversion of it. Wow. So I would imagine that after all your study on this, it's led you into a deeper awe and wonder and appreciation for God. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The science, when you dig deep into the science, the science proves the creator. There is no possibility the science can lead you to a non-creator. Whether you want to believe it's God or not, that can be up to you. I firmly believe it is. But either way, if you don't think there's a creator, you're not looking at the science. Wow, that's fascinating. Can the brain, uh, can it heal? Can it uh, be retrained? Uh, these, these difficulties that we have, we already talked about concussions a little bit, but what are some ways we can kind of, you know, retrain our brain from some of those, um, you know, I heard the phrase think holes at times where we get stuck in these patterns and all of that. Uh, some of that is just, you know, a, a little bit of self-talk and all that, but sometimes it's deeper than that. What, what have you seen? Is it just sleep and diet? So no, it's not. It's, it's very much what you just said. There's, there's so many, the brain, think of the brain. It's not an exact analogy, but it's very similar to a muscle. Okay. You either use it or lose it. Hmm. Okay. In certain areas of your brain, if you're not practicing things like being present, then you're not producing, your brain's not firing off those 10, 11, 12 hertz alpha waves, which means that you're barely producing any of them. The more you fire off certain waves, the more they wire together and the more they grow together so that when you fire off a little bit, a bunch fire off together. So that's why when you practice something, you become better at it. Hmm. When you practice language, you become better at it. When you practice anything, you become better at it. Athletes, when they practice things, they become better at the coordination needed for it. Kids playing video games, when they practice, they get better at it. They get so it's automatic. And that's because neurons have been wired together. So your brain wires based on what you do. Hmm. So if you are in a job that is always pushing you to get something done, you have to get something done, you're going, 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 your brain is wiring to stay in that state. That's why I do a lot of work with the special forces with the US Army. You cannot take a soldier, put them in a high threat life or death situation for two years and expect their brain not to change. Their brain starts to stay in a fight or flight. It's been in a fight or flight all the time. You know, if you're in that war zone situation, even on your day off, you're in town and you're walking through, you know, areas that could have bombs, people, you're constantly watching for things. There's no relaxation really. Mm. So yours are starting to condition up and then they start staying there. 
and be like me keeping my arm in a flex position for so long. If I put my arm in a cast in a flex position for a year, I lose my range of motion. My ligaments tighten all up. Same thing happens in the brain where those things start conditioning. And so now I can't undo that or it's very, very hard right? Mm. Um, to, to, to undo that. You have to practice for a long time. That's where what we do is we do something called neurofeedback. Once we find an area of the brain, mm. we can put a sensor. If, if a certain area of the brain is staying, like say my right, say my left prefrontal, that's staying up high, that causes a lot of OCD, overanalyzing, overthinking. And, you know, maybe because I've just me my personality leans towards that and I've I've just done that over and over and over now they're so strong that it's just staying up and now I can't stop analyzing even on things I don't want to right so I can put a sensor right on that area of the brain and I can look at those beta waves that's producing and I can see that I'm producing huge amounts when I'm at rest when I'm trying not to do anything I'm still producing huge amounts of those beta waves which force me to think and overthink constantly you know someone that has that they can think about not thinking and they'll have anxiety about not thinking you can't <laughs> even settle it down but we can put a sensor there and what we do is we can put it through a feedback response that looks like a video game now what's so cool about that is now you have this sensor on your brain and whenever your brain produces a little bit less whenever it relaxes a little bit even one percent we can make a video game start going forward like a car start racing <laughs> And you're getting this reward of, wow, my car's going, the music's going, this feels good. And then every time the brain goes back up to a little bit of anxiety overthinking, the car comes to a stop and the music goes down. So this is just operant conditioning. This is like taking a dog and giving them a treat whenever they sit, pull away the treat when they stand. You do that enough and you can do that now to specific areas of the brain. And we can train that part of the brain way down to a relaxed state. And when it does, it stays there. And now you're relaxed. You can still come up when you need to, but it goes back down. Wow. So that is so cool. Yeah. Well, I know we could talk about this for hours and uh, I, I so appreciate you being on the show because you're you're really making the brain a little bit more simple for the rest of us. Uh, for most of us, it's just a big uh, uh, control center of our of our body. We have no con right. control over or no idea what to do with it other than saying that if somebody's a brain surgeon, they're a genius. So Hey, so how can people find out more about what you do or what, what sources do you recommend? Or yeah. uh, is there a website we should check out? Uh, where can we find you? One thing I want to just say, I think, I think that the enemy uses the fact that we think we don't have control of our brain. Mm. God designed us to be able to have control of our brain. We should be able to shift. Our brain naturally should be able to shift back and forth and respond to things. And we should be able to go into this present state when we need to just calm down our brain. We should be able to go in this kind of acute anxious state when we need to get something accomplished and done. We should be able to shift into these deep sleep cycles and get good recovery. That's the way God designed our brain, hmm. okay? And I think the, the problem with a lot of mental health now today is that it's become just okay to throw some medication at it and say, you know what, that's just how I am. I don't have control of my brain. If you don't have control of your brain, it loses, you lose control of everything. You know, really understanding that when you can control your brain, when you can get in the right state, there is nothing. You could not give me billions of dollars in place of having control of my brain and being able to get into the state that I need to get to. Because the, the amount of, um, you can be, you can live on purpose. You know, I always say that, you know, I think that um, marriages today are two people that are drowning in an ocean trying to save each other. Hmm. Okay. They have no reserve at all. They have so much anxiety that they are basically trying to survive themselves. And now my spouse's problem just becomes more problem for me and I'm already drowning and I have no reserve for her and she has no reserve for me, okay? Mm -hmm. And so now we have two people that are better off by themselves because you can't have two people drowning in themselves trying to save each other. Mm -hmm. But when you practice things like meditation, being present, and again, I'm not talking about some Buddhist thing with meditation, I'm talking about being present, being present in the, you know, you know, being there, being in the moment. When you practice that, it lowers your stress and it gives you reserve. Now, I think when that's how God designed marriage, to have two people that have enough reserve for each other to where when I have a lot of stress, my wife has some reserve for me to help me. When I, when she has stress, I have reserve. Now you have a relationship 
where two people become 10 times stronger than any individual by themselves. Wow. Right. But we don't practice those things at all. You know, and that's why we're having such a high divorce rate and so many issues. And that transcends down to parents now having no time to be present with their kids. Mm -hmm. They're yelling at their kids constantly. They have no reserve for themselves, let alone raising, you know, kids and, and stuff. And it's just, it's causing a problem. So learning to be able to shift down and control. I love the day when, you know, when you walk in and you're upset and, and your wife is like, hey, a little more alpha waves would be nice right now because it becomes a physical thing. It's not like, hey, you idiot, settle down. You're being you know, so rude. It's like hey, a little more alpha waves. You know, that's something someone can be like, okay, yeah, I get that. I can I do that. Take a deep breath. All right, good. So just wanted to throw that last part out. But yeah, um, our website is brainperformance.com. So just brainperformance.com. Okay. You can check that out. There's some, some cool videos and testimonials and stuff there. And, um, you know, if someone wants to get a brain map or anything, we've got a few centers throughout Southern California that uh, can help that. It's very inexpensive, quick and easy to do. Um, it's really cool to see your brain. And it's cool to see your spouse's brain. It's cool to see your kid's brain. I love it when a family comes in and they all know how their, 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 their brains work because it, it gets rid of the stigma of you're just doing that to kind of tick me off. And it's more like, oh, I understand how your brain works. Your brain naturally goes there right? And my brain naturally goes here. So we start to understand each other, how each other works. And there's a little more empathy mm. that comes into that versus just, you're, you know, you're different than me. And that ticks me off. So if I drag my wife and two daughters in there, and the four of us get a brain map, uh, you'll walk us through exactly um, why I'm right and they're wrong? A hundred percent. That's my job. Just give me a list okay. of everything you want me to say about your wife and your kids ahead of time. And uh, we just go off of that. <laughs> perfect. Just perfect. Well, Brian, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, being a part of what we're doing. This is going to really help out a lot of people. So I really appreciate it. Awesome. Great talking to you. Well, I hope your brain uh, got a lesson from that. That was incredible stuff. And maybe you want to check out his organization and their work and get a brain scan. I think I might do that as well. Hey, next week we're back with a friend of mine who is part of the reason why you said yes to that piece of cheesecake, why you said yes to the extra large Pepsi, why you went to Universal Studios, and so many other things. He's a marketing officer. His name is Mark Mears. He's going to share some marketing secrets with us. Make sure you check that out next week with us. Until then, thank you to Saga Counseling. Make sure you check them out, sagacounseling.com. And as always, keep it simple. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple.